Well, this morning we draw our study of Mark's gospel to a close, and we do so with a passage of scripture that most likely was not written by Mark. Depending on the translation, the final 12 verses of Mark may be included, may be bracketed or footnoted, or may be missing altogether. The reason is that the oldest manuscripts of Mark do not include the final 12 verses. They do, however, appear in many manuscripts from the third century on, not all, but most. Some that don't include them end after verse 8 from the third, uh, with the addition that reads this. And they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. And some that do include verses 9 through 20, like our New American Standard, add that after verse 20. And then there are a few manuscripts that include another edition between verses 14 and 15 that attempt to soften Jesus' rebuke of the disciples for their unbelief and hardness of heart. The differences exist because the oldest manuscripts end abruptly after verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. <laughs> no one believes that's the way Mark intended to conclude his gospel. It's possible that something happened to him before he could finish it, or that the final leaf of his original scroll was somehow destroyed or lost. Besides the external evidence, the fact that the best and oldest manuscripts do not include the final verses, the internal evidence, the literary style and choice of words used, also points to another author other than Mark. Who it was, we have no way of knowing. It may have been a solitary scribe or more likely a school of early church scholars who sought to bring Mark's gospel to a more appropriate end. Now the fact that most of what has been added has been accepted by the church for 1,700 years is testimony to the fact that there's no reason to discount what they wrote or dismiss it as being inaccurate. Even if Mark didn't actually write it, what it says is true if properly understood and should be accepted as biblical. And I emphasize that it must be properly understood because some aberrant beliefs such as snake handling and poison drinking and the excesses of the charismatic movement have pretty much sprung from verses 17 and 18. If we take all 12 verses together, we notice that these verses need not be controversial because the theme tying them all together is simply belief in the resurrected Lord. Some form of the word believe is used seven times. And if we let that guide us and not get sidetracked by peripheral issues, 
I think we'll find whoever penned these words did a very good job drawing Mark's gospel to a close. Verses 1 through 8 tell us Jesus arose from the grave. And verses 9 through 20 tell us to believe in the risen Lord. He has been seen. He has promised to save. And he has confirmed the word. Beginning with verse 9. Now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. And after that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. And they went away and reported to the others, but they did not believe them either. And afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. Jesus reproached the disciples for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. No doubt it was hard to believe someone you saw crucified by Roman soldiers and who had been buried in a sealed tomb that was guarded by them had actually come back to life. But Jesus had said it would happen. And now he had been seen by credible witnesses. Mark tells us that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, came to the tomb early on Sunday morning to anoint the body of Jesus. When they discovered the stone had been rolled away and that Jesus' body was gone, an angel told them he had risen. They were then instructed to go tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee. Apparently, Peter and John heard the news first and ran to the tomb to see for themselves. And Mary Magdalene followed them back to the tomb. After they saw it was empty and had left, Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping when Jesus spoke to her, asking her why she was weeping. She thought it was the gardener until he spoke her name. After their time together, Mary hurried back to the disciples who were mourning and weeping and told them that she had seen Jesus, but they didn't believe her. Jesus then appeared to a couple of followers who were walking on the road to Emmaus. Luke gives us more details of this account, even naming one of them, Cleophas. These two men were walking to Emmaus, 11 miles from Jerusalem, when a stranger joined them while they were discussing the crucifixion and the newly discovered empty grave. Mark says that Jesus appeared in a different form, apparently disguised to some degree because the men didn't recognize him until he broke bread with them. As soon as they recognized him, Jesus disappeared. And they hurried back to Jerusalem to tell the good news that Jesus was alive, that they had seen him. But again, the 
disciples did not believe it. Jesus had to appear to them personally to convince them that he was alive and that the reports they had heard were true. And he apparently wasn't happy about it. He reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, the strongest rebuke he ever made to the disciples. Mary and the men who had visited with Jesus on the road were known followers, and they were trustworthy persons. They had reported what they had actually seen and heard and should have been believed, even if it did seem too good to be true. But it was true. And Jesus expected them to believe the testimony of reliable witnesses. Now they had seen him with their own eyes, all of them except for Thomas. And Jesus would appear the following week for his sake, inviting doubting Thomas to place his fingers into the holes of his hands and his hand into his side. After convincing Thomas that it really was him, Jesus said, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. Years later, Peter, when writing to Christians who hadn't seen the risen Lord, hadn't been privileged to see him, wrote this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. We don't have to see Jesus with our own eyes to know he's alive. He was seen by witnesses, over 500 at one time, and their testimony is true. Historical fact is based on the testimony of those who witnessed it. And we have adequate testimony to believe Jesus is indeed the risen Lord. So we believe because he has been seen. And we believe not only because it's true, but because of what he has promised to do. If we believe. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Jesus is the risen Lord, and those who believe it and act upon that belief will be saved. Those who disbelieve will be condemned. This warning must not be overlooked. If the evidence is there, and it is, then you must express your belief in the fact that Jesus is the risen Lord. And you express your faith through baptism. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. Now it's true, this verse, as well as the entire ending of Mark that we're studying, is of question.
questionable origin. And if this were the only place in the New Testament where baptism and salvation are linked, we would be on shaky ground to insist that baptism is essential. But this is not the only place they're linked. When Saul was converted, Ananias told him, And now, why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. In John 3, 5, Jesus may very well have linked baptism and salvation when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. On the day of Pentecost, when the Jews asked what they should do, Peter said, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Peter actually said in 1 Peter 3.21, Baptism now saves us. So Mark 16 is not the only verse to make it clear that baptism is linked to salvation. Now that's not to say that the act of baptism itself is what saves us. Getting wet isn't the key to unlocking heaven's door. Baptism must be tied to belief in the resurrected Lord to be of any value. If you don't believe in the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it doesn't matter what you do. You'll be condemned. But if you believe baptism, immersion in water, is the expected response to your belief. And upon your baptism, you can be assured of your salvation. Now again, it's belief in the resurrected Lord, not baptism. That's the theme of these verses. And after reproaching the disciples for their initial lack of belief, Jesus commissioned them to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. This is what we call the Great Commission. Now, even if Mark didn't write it here, we know Jesus said it. In Matthew 28, 19, we read, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The disciples had seen the risen Lord, and they now believed. Their job was now to be witnesses of the resurrection and to share that message in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. That they did. And Jesus confirmed their word with miraculous signs. Verses 17 through 20. And these signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink in a deadly poison, it shall not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick. 
and they will recover. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs which followed. Now, at first glance, this sounds like everyone who believes will be given the power to perform miraculous signs. When it says these signs will accompany those who have believed, it's only natural to go back to the previous mention of those who believe and assume it's the same group. If that were true, then those who believe and are baptized would be able, should be able, to cast out demons, speak with new tongues, pick up serpents, drink deadly poisons, and heal the sick. And that is what our charismatic brethren believe this is saying. But the fact of the matter is that the vast majority of believers over the last 2,000 years have not been able to cast out demons, speak with new tongues, pick up serpents, drink deadly poisons, and heal the sick. Some would suggest that's because most simply don't believe strongly enough that if we did, we could all be doing such things. But again, experience doesn't prove that to be the case. There have been great men of faith throughout the ages who did none of those things. Now, there have been anecdotal accounts of such things taking place, and some claim to be able to do such things today, but the experience of most believers is that these things do not take place. So what do we do with these verses? Since they're not confirmed by our experience, and Scripture nowhere else states that those who believe in Jesus' name will cast out demons, speak with new tongues, pick up serpents, drink deadly poisons, and be able to heal the sick, should we simply dismiss them as uninspired additions to the text? Perhaps. But maybe there's a better explanation. The focus of these verses, remember, is belief. And it's primarily the belief or lack of belief in the lives of the disciples. That's the focus here. And in verse 20, speaking of the disciples after they believed, we read these words. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. We know the disciples were given the authority to cast out demons and did so. We know they miraculously spoke foreign languages on the day of Pentecost. When Paul was on the island of Malta, he accidentally picked up a poisonous viper with some firewood. And the natives assumed he was a god when he didn't die from the snake bite. We don't have any record of the disciples drinking poison, but some may have. It may have happened, not as a test of their faith, but simply in the course of their ministry. And we know they were given the power to lay hands on the sick and heal them, all of them, not just some, like faith healers of today, 
claim to be able to do. These miraculous powers were given to them to confirm the truthfulness of the message they were proclaiming, that Jesus had miraculously risen from the dead. After 40 days, he ascended to heaven. So he couldn't keep appearing to people to convince them he was alive. But he had appeared to sufficient witnesses to establish it as being true. And the truthfulness of their witness was confirmed with miraculous signs or attesting miracles. I think that's the point of verses 17 through 20. I'm not going to rule out the possibility of other believers being given the power to do such. God can do whatever he wants, wherever he wants. But my experience hasn't shown that to be the case. All I know for certain is that Jesus is the risen Lord. He has been seen. He has promised to save. He has confirmed the word. So I believe it. And I pray you do too. And if you do, I trust you've been baptized. If not, I plead with you to surrender to his will, to openly express your faith and be immersed into him. I know there's a lot of confusion about baptism lot of traditions in our histories, but the scripture is very clear. If we believe and are baptized, and the word means to be immersed, to be dunked into water, symbolic of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, if we'll do that, we will be saved. The assurance of our salvation is dependent upon our obedience. Baptism is very important. It's not something that we talk about every week. In fact, sad to say, it's not something we're prepared to administer every week. Uh, we've had issues. I think the devil knows how to mess up baptistries. <laughs> every church I've been in has had issues with their baptistry. So we can't keep water ready all the time. It just... It's physically impossible. It destroys the baptistry itself. But next week, the baptistry will be ready. We've got one who's committed to walking down and making known his faith in Christ and being immersed into him. So if you're thinking about it, if you have questions about it, I pray you'll ask me. You'll talk to me. You'll call me. Talk to someone else in the church. Get your questions answered and ask yourself if, if this is something you should do personally. Not something that someone else does for you. Something you do. And if you decide that you're ready to confess Christ as Lord and to share in his death, burial, and resurrection, everything will be ready next week. And it will be a great privilege for us to witness your death, burial, and resurrection in Christ. I encourage you 
encourage you, I plead with you to take seriously what Mark 16 says. And that which is affirmed by the rest of Scripture. Let's pray. Father, I come before you with, with joy. Joy over the promises you've made. And I come with confidence. Confidence that you'll do what you say you'll do. Jesus did what he said he would do. He rose from the grave. I know that's hard to believe. The disciples struggled with it. But once they were convinced, they became obedient to the commands and the call he gave them. I pray, Lord, that if there are brothers and sisters in our body who have been struggling with this or maybe not even thinking of it for a long time, assuming it was resolved years ago when, when it hasn't been because they didn't do it personally, I pray that your spirit will guide them and cause them to, to give second thoughts and third thoughts to what your word says and give them the courage to respond in a way that confesses openly and freely their faith in the resurrected Lord. That indeed is my prayer in Jesus' name.